but uh, that I would say that his work is informed common sense and that any man who reads it immediately recognizes uh, that almost all of it is common sense, provided, of course, you have a certain amount of information. So his his great ability is to, to connect information with truths which are obvious but come to a lot of people as revelatory. One of the things that I noticed was a certain cowardice in the intellectual class who saw exactly what I saw, but didn't want to think about it, partly because it's very painful to think about it. Most people divide the world into victims and non-victims, and of course we're on the non-victim side. I very, very rarely met a young person who lived with a mother and a father in the same house. That was the great strength of America, that it was able to absorb large numbers of people from all over the place and turn them into Americans. But now it doesn't seem to be turning uh, them into Americans, uh, or at least not as efficiently as it once did. There must be some some glue that glues us together. Otherwise, we just happen to be living in the same place, as if as if the country were a hotel rather than a country. Now it seems to me that the multiculturalists, the ideologists of it are trying to destroy any possible, or dissolve any possible glue that keeps people together. When you talk to addicts, I would talk to addicts and I'd say, how, why, how did you become an addict? And they would always, always say, I fell in with the wrong crowd. That was always the answer. And I would say to them, it's strange, you know, <clears throat> I meet many people who fell in with the wrong crowd, but I've never met any member of the wrong crowd itself. But there are those who want to divide us rather than unite us, and who, of course, derive, as, 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 as uh, Thomas Sowell points out, derive their incomes, their whole way of life from dividing people. It's in their... Uh, financial and uh, economic interest to divide us because that's how they gain their power and their influence and their money. Welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. I'm your host, Alan Woolen. The voice you just heard belongs to Dr. Anthony Daniels, who writes under the pen name Theodore Dalrymple. If you have already listened to episode 25, which features my conversation with Catherine Beerbelsing, 
you might remember that I introduced you to the ideas of Theodore Dalrymple back then. Catherine is friends with Dalrymple, and after that episode, she put me in touch with him via email. And of course, I invited him onto the podcast to talk about Soul and his ideas. He graciously accepted my invitation, and here we are today. I can't possibly exaggerate how honored I feel to have gotten the chance to meet and talk with Theodore Dalrymple. I was very intimidated by him at first, but his warm demeanor instantly put me at ease. For example, when we emailed back and forth to set up a date for the interview, he addressed me as Alan and signed his emails, Tony. That might seem like a small gesture in the grand scheme of things, but not all my guests have done that. Some even addressed me in their emails as Mr. Wolden. Also, Dalrymple is an experienced psychiatrist, and talking to psychiatrists always makes me feel a little uncomfortable, because I imagine that they can immediately see through my pretenses and, with a superpower not unlike X-ray vision, they can immediately detect if I am being phony or manipulative or lying, you know, being human. But a great psychiatrist knows how to draw other people out of their shells, and I can attest to the fact that this is indeed what I experienced in the presence of the great Theodore Dalrymple. Something happened at the end of our conversation, which has never happened before since I've been doing this podcast. After I turned off the recording on our call, Dalrymple and I proceeded to shoot the bull for another 45 minutes off the record. We had a fantastic conversation, which I will cherish for the rest of my life. On the one hand, I regretted that the recording had been turned off. But on the other hand, perhaps that conversation would never have occurred had the recording still been turned on. We will never know. It's like the Heisenberg Principle, which states that you can never measure something without changing it in the process. Similarly, you can never knowingly record a conversation without fundamentally changing the course of that conversation. Today, as an introduction to my conversation with Theodore Dalrymple, I'd like to take a deep dive into his 2010 classic, Life at the Bottom. This is an incredible book and I highly recommend it to all fans of Thomas Sowell. I like both the printed and the audiobook versions, but I actually prefer the audiobook, just because the fellow reading it does a fantastic job. It's a classic, and you'll hear several clips from that audiobook during this episode. I'm not the only big fan of Theodore Dalrymple around here. Thomas Sowell is also quite the fan. In 2016, he had this to say about Dalrymple. If you are concerned about issues involved when some people want to expand the welfare state and others want to contract it, then one of the most relevant and insightful books is Life at the Bottom by Theodore Dalrymple. What makes Life at the Bottom especially relevant and valuable is that it is about the actual consequences of the welfare state in England, which are remarkably similar to the consequences in the United States. Many Americans may find it easier to think straight about what happens 
when it is in a country where the welfare recipients are overwhelmingly whites, so that their behavior cannot be explained away by a legacy of slavery or institutional racism or other such evasions of facts in the United States. As Dalrymple says, It will come as a surprise to American readers, perhaps, to learn that the majority of the British underclass is white and that it demonstrates all the same social pathology as the black underclass in America, for very similar reasons, of course. That reason is the welfare state and the attitudes and behavior it promotes and subsidizes. The subtitle of Life at the Bottom is this. The Worldview That Makes the Underclass Life at the Bottom is a deep and penetrating exploration of the myriad social pathologies which characterize the predominantly white underclass in England. But what is a social pathology? According to the Oxford Dictionary, a social pathology is a structural and functional malfunction of society associated with pervasive problems that often have adverse consequences for health. Examples are alcohol and substance abuse, family violence, broken families, vandalism, street crime, and premature death. Trust me, those examples are just scratching the surface. And in this episode, I'll be discussing the many social pathologies highlighted by Dalrymple's portrait of the British underclass. In analyzing his book, I have identified over a dozen general social pathologies, plus seven more pathologies which are connected with the sexual relations between men and women. That's approximately 20 distinct social pathologies in total. Here are some of the general social pathologies discussed by Dalrymple. Violence, suicide and parasuicide, neglect and abuse of children, broken relationships, crime and victimization, drugs, illiteracy and innumeracy, cult religiosity, nihilism, despair, victim mentality, and non-judgmentalism. When it comes to the sexual relations between men and women, Dalrymple identifies these seven pathologies. Promiscuity, jealousy, father abandonment, serial stepfatherhood, abortion, sexual abuse of children, and male-on-female violence. I think you can tell already that this is going to be a very meaty episode. As regular listeners of this podcast know, Music is a key component of my podcasting, and this episode will, of course, be no exception. In order to do justice to the subject of today's podcast, I needed to find a musical genre which helps deepen our understanding of these social pathologies. And I think I have found the perfect music in the repertoire of one Marshall Bruce Mathers III who is also known to his fans under the stage name Eminem. Since Dalrymple writes about the social pathologies of the white underclass of Britain, who better to pair him with than Eminem, America's preeminent white rap and hip-hop artist, who I assert is the quintessential embodiment of white underclass social disorganization and malaise. So today's episode of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast will be partially dedicated to the musical genius of Eminem.
Yes, I did use the word genius in the same sentence as Eminem. Forgive me, but I stand by that characterization, and I'm sticking to my guns on this one. Apparently, Eminem sticks to his guns as well. Um, Paul, listen. Joel just called me, and he told me you're in the fucking back behind the studio, shooting your gun off in the air like it's a shooting range. I told you not to fucking bring your gun around like an idiot outside of your home. You're going to get yourself in trouble. Don't bring your gun outside of your home. You can't carry it on you. Leave your fucking gun at home. To be frank, I had some hesitation about using Eminem's music as the backdrop for this episode. His lyrics are crude, rude, and lewd. And while they certainly are offensive to the ear, I do also find them stimulative to the intellect. And I think that's the whole point. Let his music offend us and penetrate our sensibilities. We are discussing important and difficult subjects here, and if we need to be offended and challenged to fully internalize them, so be it. That having been said, this episode is definitely R-rated, maybe even worse. It's not for everyone. And if you have been enjoying past episodes of this podcast with your children or teenagers, this will not be the right episode for them. This is an adults-only episode, and I tagged it as explicit on my podcast hosting app. There will be no cleaned-up version, only this one. Caveat auditor, let the listener beware. Justin, it's Zoe. Um, Kelly did not have me call, however, I just listened to Eminem in her car. It is the most disgusting thing I have ever heard in my entire life, and I seriously want to call his fucking agent and tell them how fucking disgusting he is. It, like, makes me upset. I'm now nauseous and I can't eat lunch. Goodbye. Even Eminem's attorney has trouble listening to his albums. Hey, what's going on? This is Paul Rosenberg, your faithful attorney at law. Listen, I... Listen to the rough copy of your album, and, uh, you know, I just got to be honest with you. Uh, can you tone it down a little bit? Because there's only so much I can explain. Give me a call. I find it amusing that Eminem made a point of highlighting the obviously Jewish name of his attorney in that skit. Paul Rosenberg, your faithful attorney at law. Why do hip-hop artists always seem to have Jewish accountants and lawyers and not black ones. Hmm. I'll have to ask Kanye that question the next time I see him. Uh, we made the White Lives Matter tease, mm. and then when I put up the, the tweet, the DEFCON tweet, now nah, he, ain't, he ain't releasing the tea because mm. he's Jewish. Mm. And I'm like, see, this is my exact point that I'm making. Mm. Like, Jewish people have owned the black voice, whether it's through us wearing a Ralph Lauren shirt or it's all of us being signed to a record label or having a Jewish manager or being signed to a Jewish basketball team or doing a movie on a Jewish platform like Disney. We understand it's like, I, I respect what the Jew, Jewish people have done. They brought their people together. You know, they came into money uh, through the lawyers. Theodore Dalrymple introduces us to the social pathologies of the white underclass of Britain. How are we as Americans supposed to relate to this distinctly British phenomenon? Both Dalrymple and Sowell point us to the black underclass of America as a point of reference for this British counterpart. But I suspect there is another community here in America 
which offers us an alternative reference, and that is the white underclass itself. Have you ever heard the term white trash? Here's how Wikipedia defines it. White trash is a derogatory racial and class-related slur used in American English to refer to poor white people, especially in the rural areas of the southern United States. The label signifies a social class inside the white population and especially a degraded standard of living. It is used as a way to separate the noble and hard-working, good-poor, from the lazy, undisciplined, ungrateful and disgusting, bad-poor. The use of the term provides middle- and upper-class whites a means of distancing themselves from the poverty and powerlessness of poor whites who cannot enjoy those privileges, as well as a way to disown their perceived behavior. The population which could be identified this way is oftentimes portrayed in American movies as the inhabitants of so-called trailer parks. A trailer park is a piece of land upon which many people park their mobile homes to form a contained community with other mobile home dwellers. Rent is paid to live there, but it is typically much cheaper than apartment or house dwelling. Plus, there is a transient quality to these communities because it is easy for residents to pick up and move themselves to another trailer park in another town with short notice, since they bring their home with them. Wikipedia says this about the image of trailer parks. Trailer parks, especially in American culture, are stereotypically viewed as lower-income housing for occupants living at or below the poverty line who have low social status. Many stereotypes have been developed regarding people who live in trailer parks, which are similar to stereotypes of the poor and the term trailer trash, is often used as an adjective in the same vein as the derogatory American terms white trash or ghetto. Eminem spent a significant part of his childhood living in trailer parks, and he portrayed this environment vividly in his semi-autobiographical 2002 film, Eight Mile. In that film, he lived in a trailer with his young daughter, his mother, played by Kim Basinger, and his mother's alcoholic and perpetually unemployed and aggressive boyfriend of the month. In this scene from the movie, Eminem defends his mother after her boyfriend gets violent with her over their impending eviction from the trailer park. His palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. Mom's spaghetti, he's nervous. But on the surface, he looks calm and ready to drop palms. But he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down. The whole crowd goes so loud, he opens his... You know your mom's getting evicted? It says right here. Tenant must vacate the premises due to non-payment of rent. You know about this? Morning. Hey there. I was just talking to your precious son about this eviction situation. You planning on telling me about this, huh? Oh, honey, that, that, that was just a mistake. Hey, you fucking liar. Hey, man! Stay out of this rabbit. It's okay, don't worry, I'm taking care of it. Don't. Him. Man! Fuck is your problem? You touch my mother, no, man! No, stay, stay out of it! Stay out of it! I'm out of here. I 
can't go out with someone like you. Are you gonna let him just talk to you like this? With just two don't, homeless don't kids. Eminem reveals his affections for Trailer Park Girls in this 2002 song called Without Me. Two trailer park girls go round the outside, round the outside, round the outside. Two trailer park girls go round the outside, round the outside, round the outside. I'm not exactly sure what Two trailer park girls go round the outside, round the outside actually means. But you know what? I don't really need to know. The mere fact that he is mentioning trailer park girls tells us a lot about his connection with and intimate knowledge of the trailer park environment. From what I saw in Eminem's 8 Mile film, as well as other films which portray the trailer park lifestyle, it seems to me that most, if not all, of the social pathologies identified by Dalrymple in Life at the Bottom as being common among underclass whites in England are also present in ample supply within both America's white and black underclasses. Of the almost 20 social pathologies Dalrymple describes in his book, I'd like to focus on five in this episode. Violence, the neglect and abuse of children, broken relationships, crime, and promiscuity and jealousy. So let's jump right in. I don't know which will be harder to hear, the crude language of Eminem or the true stories of real people as told by Theodore Dalrymple. I'll let you be the judge of that. Social pathology number one. Violence. Working in a British prison, Dalrymple came face to face with the violent tendencies of the white underclass. He has gotten to know more murderers than probably anyone else I can think of. As the prison psychiatrist, I imagine he must have had to sit alone in a room with these gentlemen and gentle ladies and talk with them about their childhoods and other such sundry lines of questioning psychiatrists are wont to do. What a job that must be. Dalrymple said this. Not long ago, a murderer entered my room in the prison shortly after his arrest to seek a prescription for the methadone to which he was addicted. I told him that I would prescribe a reducing dose and that within a relatively short time my prescription would cease. I would not prescribe a maintenance dose for a man with a life sentence. Yes, he said, it's just my luck to be here on this charge. Luck. He had already served a dozen prison sentences, many of them for violence, and on the night in question had carried a knife with him, which he must have known from experience that he was inclined to use. But it was the victim of the stabbing who was the real author of the killer's action. If he hadn't been there, he wouldn't have been stabbed. 
my murderer was by no means alone in explaining his deed as due to circumstances beyond his control. As it happens, there are three stabbers, two of them unto death, now in the prison, who used precisely the same expression when describing to me what happened. The knife went in, they said when pressed to recover their allegedly lost memories of the deed. The knife went in, unguided by human hand, apparently. That the long-hated victims were sought out, and the knives carried to the scene of the crimes, was as nothing compared with the willpower possessed by the inanimate knives themselves, which determined the unfortunate outcome. Dalrymple's description of the use of the passive voice, the murderer referring to his bad luck in being in prison and how the knife went in, is a recurring theme among the underclass, who see themselves as victims of circumstances beyond their control or of society in general. This is a central thesis of life at the bottom, and one worth explicating further here. Dalrymple said this, It is the ideas my patients have that fascinate and, to be honest, appall me, for they are the source of their misery. Their ideas make themselves manifest even in the language they use. The frequency of locutions of passivity is a striking example. An alcoholic, explaining his misconduct while drunk, will say, The beer went mad. A heroin addict, explaining his resort to the needle, will say, Heroin's everywhere. It is as if the beer drank the alcoholic and the heroin injected the addict. Other locutions plainly serve an exculpatory function and represent a denial of agency and therefore of personal responsibility. The murderer claims the knife went in or the gun went off. The man who attacks his sexual consort claims that he went into one or lost it as if he were the victim of a kind of epilepsy of which it is the doctor's duty to cure him. Until the cure, of course, he can continue to abuse his consort, for such abuse has certain advantages for him, safe in the knowledge that he, not his consort, is its true victim. I have come to see the uncovering of this dishonesty and self-deception as an essential part of my work. When a man tells me, in explanation of his antisocial behaviour, that he is easily led, I ask him whether he was ever easily led to study mathematics or the subjunctives of French verbs. Invariably, the man begins to laugh. The absurdity of what he has said is immediately apparent to him. Indeed, he will acknowledge that he knew how absurd it was all along, but that certain advantages, both psychological and social, accrued by keeping the pretense up. There are three types of violence discussed by Dalrymple in his book. There is the violence associated with crime, like robbery and murder, for example. There is the violence between men in their struggle to demonstrate social dominance and to avenge bruised egos. And finally, there is the violence committed by men towards women in particular. As an example of this last type, let's listen to this short skit from Eminem's 2002 album, The Eminem Show. This skit shows us in real time how things can escalate from laughter to murderous violence in just a few short seconds. I'm gonna kill this bitch. I'm gonna kill him. I'm going to fucking jail because I'm gonna kill this bitch. What? I don't know. I got a really, really bad feeling. Man, would you shut the fuck up, Gary? You always got a bad feeling, man. That's a car right there. Uh, park. I'm parking. Fucking turn the car off, dog. All right. 
Alright, we wait. We wait for what? We wait until she comes out, and then I'm gonna fucking kill her. Man, you ain't gonna kill me. Man, what shut the, the fuck, fuck did up, you bring dog? that for? Just shut up. Fucking clip is in. Man, don't point that shit at me. It's not even loaded, bitch. Look. Dude! <laughs> God, I fucking hate when you do that shit. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny as fuck. Fuck around and kill me one Get you every time. I swear. Is that her? Where? Right there, motherfucker. <sighs> yeah. Alright, get out. Get out. Fuck. Get out! What the fuck? You want me to get under the car? Dalrymple says this about the phenomenon of jealous rage directed by men towards women. In the last five years, I have treated at least 2,000 men who have been violent to their wives, girlfriends, lovers, and concubines. It seems to me that violence on such a vast scale could not easily have been overlooked in the past, including by me. And there is very good reason why such violence should have increased under the new sexual dispensation. If people demand sexual liberty for themselves, but sexual fidelity from others, the result is the inflammation of jealousy, for it is natural to suppose that one is being done by as one is doing to others, and jealousy is the most frequent precipitant of violence between the sexes. Jealousy has always been a feature of the relations between men and women. Othello, written four centuries ago, is still instantly comprehensible to us. But I meet at least five Othellos and five Desdemonas a week, and this is something new, if the psychiatric textbooks printed a few years ago were right in claiming that jealousy of the obsessive sort was a rare condition. Far from being rare, it is nowadays almost the norm, especially among underclass men, whose fragile sense of self-worth derives solely from possession of a woman and is poised permanently on the brink of humiliation at the prospect of losing this one prop in life. Social Pathology number 2. Neglect and Abuse of Children Dalrymple observed among the underclass of Britain what he calls the, quote, mass neglect of children, unquote. He attributes this neglect to the slow and pervasive destruction of the family as an institution. Dalrymple says this. And so, if family life was less than blissful, with all its inevitable little prohibitions, frustrations, and hypocrisies, they called for the destruction of the family as an institution. The destigmatization of illegitimacy went hand in hand with easy divorce, the extension of marital rights to other forms of association between adults, and the removal of all the fiscal advantages of marriage. Marriage melted as snow in sunshine. The destruction of the family was, of course, an important component and consequence of sexual liberation, whose utopian program was to have increased the stock of innocent sensual pleasure, not least among the liberators themselves. It resulted instead in widespread violence consequent upon sexual insecurity and in the mass neglect of children, as people became ever more egotistical in their search for momentary pleasure. One of the negative consequences of the breakdown in the nuclear family is the phenomenon of serial stepfatherhood. I never hear anyone talking about this, 
But the trend of single mothers inviting men to live in their homes with young daughters also living there is a surefire recipe for disaster, as anyone with common sense would guess. When a man is living with one or more girls he has no biological connection to, the potential for sexual abuse skyrockets. Not to mention, a similar pathology is present when it comes to stepfathers and young boys in the home as well. In this 2009 skit from his Relapse album, Eminem pulls no punches in alluding to this phenomenon. Even our faithful attorney at law, Paul Rosenberg, is unwilling to grapple with this issue. Em, it's Paul. Um, I just listened to the entire album, and you gotta be fucking kidding me. I mean, with this Christopher Reeve shit, you know the guy's dead, right? And then the whole gay stepfather incest rape thing? I don't have your back on this one. I can't even fucking handle it. I'm done. In Eminem's 2002 hit song with rock legends Aerosmith called Sing for the Moment, Eminem depicts both the trauma caused by father abandonment as well as the violence which erupts with the stepfather who replaces the dad. Eminem sings this, A problem child, and what bothers him all comes out. When he talks about his fucking dad walking out. Because he hates him so bad that he blocks him out. If he ever saw him again, he'd probably knock him out. His stepfather hit him so he socked him back and broke his nose. His house is a broken home. There's no control. He just lets his emotions go. These ideas are nightmares to white parents whose worst fear is a child with dyed hair and who likes earrings. Like whatever they say has no bearing. It's so scary in a house that allows no swearing to see him walking around with his headphones blaring. Alone in his own zone, cold in his own care. He's a problem child. Social pathology number three, broken relationships. Dalrymple makes the argument that in a society in which survival of the individual is all but guaranteed by the state, that this leads to a decline in the quality of personal relationships. It sounds counterintuitive, and Dalrymple's argument is complex, but I see a lot of merit in it. Dalrymple explains. Entertainment absorbed passively, informs them, through television and films, of a materially more abundant and more glamorous way of life, and thus feeds resentment. A sense of their own nothingness and failure breeds powerful emotions, especially jealousy and the intense desire to dominate or possess someone else 
in order to feel in control of at least one aspect of life. It is a world in which men dominate women to inflate their egos, and women want children so that I can have something of my own, or someone to love and who'll love me. Personal relationships in this world are purely instrumental in meeting the need of the moment. They are fleeting and kaleidoscopic, though correspondingly intense. After all, no obligations or pressures, financial, legal, social, or ethical, keep people together. The only cement for personal relationships is the need and desire of the moment, and nothing is stronger but more fickle than need and desire unshackled by obligation. Unfortunately, the whims of two people rarely coincide, and thus the emotional lives of people, who, remember, have very little else to console or interest them, are repeatedly in crisis. There are many Eminem songs which convey the drama and chaos of broken relationships. In this 2010 Eminem classic, Love the Way You Lie, featuring the hauntingly beautiful voice of Rihanna, Eminem depicts the drama of a tempestuous relationship. You ever love somebody so much you can barely breathe when you're with them? You meet, and neither one of you even know what hit them. Got that warm, fuzzy feeling, yeah, them chills used to get them. Now you're getting fucking sick of looking at them. You swore you'd never hit them, never do nothing to hurt them. Now you're in each other's face, spewing venom in your words when you spit them. You push, pull each other's hair, scratch, claw, bit them, throw them down, pin them. So lost in the moments when you're in them, it's the rage that took over. It controls you both. You ever love somebody so much you can barely breathe when you're with them? You meet and neither one of you even know what hit them. Got that warm, fuzzy feeling, yeah, them chills used to get them. Now you're getting fucking sick of looking at them. You swore you'd never hit them, never do nothing to hurt them. Now you're in each other's face, spewing venom in your words when you spit them. You push, pull each other's hair, scratch, claw, pit them, throw them down, pin them. So lost in the moments when you're in them, it's the race that the culprit controls you both. So they say it best to call you separate ways. According to Dalrymple, the drama and intensity is a feature, not a bug, of underclass relationships because it supplies a sort of cement which keeps couples together. Apparently, Eminem has a somewhat strained relationship with women in his personal life. If I take the lyrics from his 2002 hit Superman at face value, he's either deeply misogynistic or has just been hurt by women enough times to always keep them at arm's length. In either case, I wouldn't call him lucky in love. I know you want me, baby. I think I want you too. I think I love you, baby. I think I love you too. I'm here to save you, girl. Come be in Shady's world. I want to 
one and grow together Let's let our love unfurl You know you want me, baby You know I want you too They call me Superman I'm here to rescue you I wanna save you, girl Come be in Shady's world Oh boy, you drive me crazy Bitch, you make they me They call girl. me Superman Beat tall hoes in a single bound I'm single now Got no ring on his finger now I never let another chick bring me down In a relationship Save it, bitch Babysit You make me sick Superman ain't saving shit Girl, you can jump on Shady's dick Straight from the hip Cut to the chase I tell him off I can slut to her face Play no games Say no names Ever since I broke up with what's her face I'm a different man Kiss my ass Kiss my lips Bitch, why ass? Kiss my dick Hit my cash I'd rather have you with my ass Don't put out I'll put you out Won't get out I'll push you out Puss blue out Poppin' shit Wouldn't piss on fire To put you out Am I too nice? Buy you ice Bitch, if you died Wouldn't buy you life Would you trying to be my new wife? What, you Mariah? Fly through twice But I do know one thing, no Bitches, they come, they go Saturday through Sunday, Monday Monday through Sunday, yo Maybe I love you one day Maybe we'll someday grow Till then just sit your drunk ass on that fucking runway, ho Cause I can't be your Superman Can't be your Superman Can't be your Superman Can't be your Social pathology number four, crime and victimization. Crime is one of the most damaging of the social pathologies which Dalrymple explores in his book. Its effects permeate the entire society and can create a culture of fear and anxiety far and wide because people adapt to their perception of its prevalence. But what is the real cause of crime? Dalrymple says this. The very form of the explanation offered by liberals for modern crime, from social conditions direct to behavior without passing through the human mind, offers those who commit crime an excuse in advance, an excuse which, with part of their minds, they know to be false, but which is nonetheless useful and convenient to them in dealing with officialdom. Finally, consider the effect that the mass media's constant rehearsal of injustices has upon the population. People come to believe that, far from being extremely fortunate by the standards of all previously existing populations, we actually live in the worst of times and under the most unjust of dispensations. Every wrongful conviction, every instance of police malfeasance, is so publicized that even professional criminals, even those who have performed appalling deeds, feel on a priori grounds they too must have been unjustly or at least hypocritically dealt with. And the widespread notion that material inequality is in itself a sign of institutionalized injustice also helps foster crime. If property is theft, then theft is a form of just retribution. This leads to the development of that most curious phenomenon, the ethical thief, the thief who prides himself on stealing only from those who in his estimation can stand the loss. Thus I have had many burglars tell me, in a glow of self-satisfaction, that they would not steal from the old, from children, or the poor, because that would be wrong. In fact, you'd steal only from people like me, I say to them. A house opposite mine has been burgled four times in two years, incidentally. They agree, and strangely enough, 
they expect my approbation of their restrained feloniousness. That's how far things have gone. Crime and its causes is one of the best litmus test issues for discerning whether someone is a liberal or a conservative. Whereas liberals tend to blame society and its inherent unfairness for crime, conservatives tend to view it as more of a personal, moral issue. Before we listen to what Eminem has to say on this subject, let's hear what the current president of the United States had to say in 1993, 30 years ago. Here's Joe Biden when he was a United States senator from Delaware. Take back the streets. It doesn't matter whether or not the person that is accosting your son or daughter or my son or daughter, my wife, your husband, my mother, your parents, it doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. It doesn't matter or not whether or not they had no background that enabled them to have to uh, become a, a social, uh, become socialized into the fabric of society. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society. The end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my sons. So I don't want to ask what made them do this. They must be taken off the street. Unless we do something about that cadre of young people, tens of thousands of them, born out of wedlock, without parents, without supervision, without any structure, without any conscience developing, because they literally, I yield myself three more minutes, because they literally have not been socialized, they literally have not had an opportunity. We should focus on them now, not out of a liberal instinct, for love, brother, and humanity, although I think that's a good instinct, but for simple, pragmatic reasons. If we don't, they will, or a portion of them will, become the predators 15 years from now. And Madam President, we have predators on our streets that society has, in fact, in part because of its neglect, created. Again, it does not mean because we created them that we somehow forgive them or do not take them out of society to protect my family and yours from them. They are beyond the pale, many of those people. Whatever happened with Joe Biden over the past three decades, you have to admit, he sounded like a bona fide conservative back in those days. Now let's listen to Eminem's 1999 skit called Guilty Conscience to see what we can learn. I haven't asked him, but I would imagine that Dalrymple would approve of Eminem's use of the term conscience in the title of this skit, because it implies that the decision whether or not to commit crime passes through some sort of mental filtering mechanism. Meet Eddie, 23 years old. Fed up with life and the way things are going, he decides to rob a liquor store. But on his way in, he has a sudden change of heart, and suddenly, his conscience comes into play. All right, stop. Now before you walk in the door of the slicker store and try to get money out the drawer, you better think of the consequence. Who are you? I'm your motherfucking conscience. That's nonsense. Go in, gap for the money, and run to one of your aunt's cribs, and borrow a damn dress, the one of a brown wig. I'm telling you, you need a place to stay. You'll be safe for days if you shave your legs with grenades, razor blades. Yeah, but if it all goes through, 
like it's supposed to The whole neighborhood knows you and they'll expose you Think about it before you walk in the door first Look at the store clerk, she's older than George Burns Fuck that, do that shit, shoot that bitch Can you afford to blow this shit? I do that rich Why you give a fuck if she dies? Are you that bitch? Do you really think she gets a fuck if you have kids? Man, don't do it, it's not worth it to risk it right. Not over this shit, Stop. drop the biscuit Don't even listen to Slim, yo, it's bad for you You know what, Dre? I don't like your attitude Social pathology number five, promiscuity and jealousy. Another story told by Eminem in his Guilty Conscience song illustrates one facet of the many social pathologies which afflict the relationships between the men and women of the underclass, namely promiscuity and jealousy. Let's hear this Eminem clip. Meet Grady, a 29-year-old construction worker. After coming home from a hard day's work, he walks in the door of his trailer park home to find his wife in bed with another man. Alright, calm down, relax, start breathing. Fuck that shit, you just caught this bitch cheating. While you at work, she's with some dude trying to get off. Fuck slit in the throat, cut this bitch's head off. Wait, what if there's an explanation for this shit? What? She tripped, fell, landed on his dick? Alright, Shady, maybe he's right, Grady. Think about the baby before you get all crazy. Okay, thought about it. Still wanna stab her? Grab her by the throat? Get your daughter and kidnap her? That's what I did. Be smart. Don't be a retard. You gonna take advice from somebody who slapped D-Bar? What you say? What's wrong? Didn't think I remember? I'ma kill you, motherfucker. Ah, uh-huh, temper, temper. Mr. Dre, Mr. and W.A., Mr. A.K. Coming straight out of Compton, y'all gonna make way? How in the fuck you gonna tell this man not to be violent? Cause he don't need to go the same route that I went. Been there, done that. Oh, fuck it. What am I saying? Shoot them both, Grady. Where's your gun at? Dalrymple says this about promiscuity and jealousy. All these enthusiasts believed that if sexual relations could be liberated from artificial social inhibitions and legal restrictions, something beautiful would emerge. A life in which no desire need be frustrated. A life in which human pettiness would melt away like snow in spring. Conflict and inequality between the sexes would likewise disappear, because everyone would get what he or she wanted when and where he or she wanted it. The grounds for such petty bourgeois emotions as jealousy and envy would vanish. In a world of perfect fulfilment, each person would be as happy as the next. The program of the sexual revolutionaries has more or less been carried out, especially in the lower reaches of society, but the results have been vastly different from those so foolishly anticipated. The revolution founded on the rock of unacknowledged reality, that women are more vulnerable to abuse than men by virtue of their biology alone, and that the desire for the exclusive sexual possession of another has remained just as strong as ever. This desire is incompatible, of course, with the equally powerful desire, eternal in the human breast, but hitherto controlled by social and legal inhibitions, for complete sexual freedom. Because of these biological and psychological realities, The harvest of the sexual revolution has not been a brave new world of human happiness, but rather an enormous increase in violence between the sexes for readily understandable reasons. Of course, even before any explanation, the reality of this increase meets angry denial from those with a vested ideological interest in concealing the results of changes they helped bring about and heartily welcome. 
they will use the kind of obfuscation that liberal criminologists so long employed to convince us that it was the fear of crime, rather than crime itself, that had increased. They will say, quite rightly, that violence between men and women has existed always and everywhere, but that our attitude towards it has changed, perhaps also correct, so that it is more frequently reported than formerly. Still, the fact remains that a hospital such as mine has experienced in the last two decades a huge increase in the number of injuries to women, most of them the result of domestic violence, and many of them of the kind that would always have come to medical attention. The increase is real, therefore, not an artifact of reporting. About one in five of the women aged 16 to 50 living in my hospital's area attends the emergency department during the year as a result of injuries sustained during a quarrel with a boyfriend or husband. And there is no reason to suppose that my hospital's experience is any different from that of another local hospital, which, together with mine, provides medical attention for half the city's population. The chapter in Life at the Bottom about sexual jealousy is the most fascinating in the book and could easily be packaged as its own book. Here's another clip to whet your appetite for reading the whole thing. The jealousy of the men, and the passion is commoner in men, though women are catching up at becoming violent in turn, is a projection onto women of their own behavior. The great majority of the jealous men I meet are flagrantly unfaithful to the object of their supposed affections, and some keep other women in the same jealous subjection elsewhere in the city and even a hundred miles away. They have no compunction about cuckolding other men, and actually delight in doing so as a means of boosting their own fragile egos. As a result, they imagine that all other men are their rivals, for rivalry is a reciprocal relationship. Thus, a mere glance in a pub directed at a man's girlfriend is sufficient to start a fight not only between the girl and her lover, but, even before that, between the two men. Serious crimes of violence continue to rise in England, many of them occasioned by sexual jealousy. Cherchez la femme has never been a sounder guide to explaining attempted murder than it is today, and the extremely fluid nature of relations between the sexes is what makes it so sound a precept. The violence of the jealous man is not always occasioned by his lover's supposed interest in another man, however. On the contrary, it serves a prophylactic function and helps to keep the woman utterly enthralled to him until the day she decides to leave him, for the whole focus of her life is the avoidance of his rage. Avoidance is impossible, however, since it is the very arbitrariness of his violence that keeps her enthralled to him. Thus, when I hear from a female patient that the man with whom she lives has beaten her severely for a trivial reason, for having served roast potatoes when he wanted boiled, for example, or for having failed to dust the top of the television, I know at once that the man is obsessively jealous. For the jealous man wishes to occupy his lover's every thought, and there is no more effective method of achieving this than his arbitrary terrorism. From his point of view, the more arbitrary and completely disproportionate the violence, the more functional it is. And indeed, he often lays down conditions impossible for the woman to meet, that a freshly cooked meal should be waiting for him the moment he arrives home, for instance, though he will not say, even to within the nearest four hours when he is arriving home, precisely so that he may have an occasion to beat her. Indeed, so effective is this method that the mental life of many of the violently abused women who consult me has focused for years upon their lovers, their whereabouts, their wishes, their comforts, their moods, to the exclusion of all else. Dalrymple points out that abortion is a common byproduct of the promiscuity 
and jealousy inherent in the male-female relationships of the underclass. He says this, If anyone wants to see what sexual relations are like, freed of contractual and social obligations, let him look at the chaos of the personal lives of members of the underclass. Here, the whole gamut of human folly, wickedness, and misery may be perused at leisure, in conditions, be it remembered, of unprecedented prosperity. Here are abortions procured by abdominal kung fu. Children who have children, in numbers unknown before the advent of chemical contraception and sex education, women abandoned by the father of their child a month before or a month after delivery, insensate jealousy, the reverse of the coin of general promiscuity that results in the most hideous oppression and violence, serial stepfatherhood that leads to sexual and physical abuse of children on a mass scale, and every kind of loosening of the distinction between the sexually permissible and the impermissible. The connection between this loosening and the misery of my patients is so obvious that it requires considerable intellectual sophistication and dishonesty to be able to deny it. One of my favorite Eminem songs touches on the subject of abortion. Here's the 2017 collaboration between Eminem and Ed Sheeran called River. That's why I may have came at you sideways. I can't keep my lies straight. But I made you terminate my baby. This love triangle left us in a wreck tangled. What else can I say? It was fun for a while. But I really would have loved your smile. Didn't really want to abort, but fuck it. What's one more lie to tell our unborn child? Let the river run Always the bridesmaid Never the bride Hey, fuck can I say If life was a highway The seat was an enclave I'd be swerving in five lanes Speeds at a high rate Like I'm sliding on ice maybe That's why I made It came at you sideways I can't keep my lies straight But I made you terminate My baby This love triangle Left us in a rectangle What else can I say It was fun for a while Bet I really would've loved your smile Didn't really wanna avoid But fuck it What's one more lie Tell her unborn child. I've been a thief, been a lover, been a cheat. Oh, my sins need holy water. Feel it washing over me. Well, little one, Sorry. I don't want to admit to something. If all it's gonna cause is pain, the truth in my lies now are falling like the rain. So let the river run. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Anthony Daniels, aka. Theodore Dalrymple to the podcast. Theodore Dalrymple, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. I first learned about you from Thomas Sowell. In his 2011 book, The Thomas Sowell Reader, he talks about life at the bottom. And his description of your book was so compelling that I read it immediately, and I've been following your work ever since. Yesterday on Twitter, I played a little game with my audience there. I told them I was preparing to interview the Thomas Sowell of Great Britain, and everyone that guessed who I was referring to would win a prize. There was a wide range of guesses, from Douglas Murray to Daniel Hannon to Nigel Farage to Neil Ferguson, but the most common guess was Theodore Dalrymple. And I'm happy to discover that I'm not the only one who draws parallels between your work and Sowell's work. You and Thomas Sowell have a lot in common. You both have written many books over several decades. You each have your specialty, 
Sowell is an economist, and you're a medical doctor and psychiatrist. But you both write on a wide range of social issues well beyond your formal training. You're both what most people would call conservative, and you share an intellectual method in the way you approach social issues. You're both skilled storytellers, and it's through your stories about everyday people that complex subjects can be introduced to lay people, which explains the popularity of both yours and Soul's books. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you both share a wry sense of humor. Now, that humor is so important because it's the spoonful of sugar which helps the medicine go down. When I really look at your body of work, the depth and breadth of it, I must say that it would be no exaggeration to also say that Thomas Sowell is the Theodore Dalrymple of America. Speaking of Theodore Dalrymple, that's not your real name. It's a pen name. Tell us why you started using a pen name and why you continue using one, even though everyone knows your real name. Well, I started using it because I needed a pseudonym. I was still a practicing doctor then. I retired quite some time ago. And I was working in a prison and um, and the hospital next door. And um, there was much less violence in the prison, of course. And um, I had to, I was a uh, going to describe what I saw, and I needed a layer, if you like, of disguise, uh, because I couldn't just write uh, uh, what I saw uh, very directly. So I wanted a pseudonym, and uh, I'd been asked uh, by uh, the editor of The Spectator to write a column about what it was like to be a doctor doing the kind of work I was doing. So we tried to think of a, a pseudonym, and it had to be of someone who didn't actually exist. And we wanted, uh, I wanted to sound old-fashioned and bad-tempered. And, and I think the uh, name achieved that. And I continue simply because that's how, insofar as I'm known at all, that's what, how I'm known. Now, you're a medical doctor and a psychiatrist. You've worked yes. in hospitals in Africa, in low-income neighborhoods in England, and also for many years in British prisons. You've quite literally seen it all. You've treated the full gamut of humanity from many different cultures, from regular everyday people to murderers and rapists. You possess a kind of superpower, which I like to call pattern recognition. When you see the same phenomena repeating itself over and over and over again, you can't help but to understand who or what is pulling the levers behind the curtain. Thomas Sowell also possesses the superpower of pattern recognition, in my opinion. And by the way, we all possess this skill to one degree or another. Doctors develop this skill, so do airline pilots, plumbers, and electricians within their respective specialties. What sets you and Sowell apart is that you both recognize patterns which apply to society and humanity as a whole, which is why so many people are so eager to hear what you have to say on every subject imaginable. If you agree with the way I'm framing this, Tell us what patterns you are seeing in society and what these patterns bode for the future. Well, I think I, I don't want to equate myself with Thomas Sowell because I think Sowell is a much greater man than I. But uh, one of the things that I noticed was a certain cowardice in the intellectual class who saw exactly what I saw, but didn't want to think about it 
partly because it's very painful to think about it, and it seems not very generous to think about it. If I, I may give you a concrete example, I noticed uh, in, in prison we used to have a lot of uh, heroin addicts who would uh, be admitted to the prison. They'd committed crimes, and they would claim to be withdrawing in the utmost agony. But I could see from how they were before they came into my room that they were actually not suffering from any great symptoms at all. Um, what they were trying to do was to get me to prescribe something for them that, in my opinion, they didn't really need. And this had been noted by many doctors who worked in the same kind of field, but they never drew any conclusions from it. Because to draw a conclusion from it, namely that uh, these people were trying to pull the wool over your eyes or trying to get something from you and so on, seemed an ungenerous thought. And part of that is because most people divide the world into victims and non-victims. And of course, we're on the non-victim side. And we want to see victims as immaculate victims who are not at all uh, responsible in any way for their own situation, because they feel that if they draw attention to the responsibility of the people for their own situation, they're being unsympathetic with them. But I would say, and I think Tom Sowell would agree with me, that this is to dehumanize them. This is to say they don't really make decisions. They don't think about what they're doing. But I never found this to be true. Another example was, I was always told that uh, prisoners on the whole are of low IQ. I mean, lower than average IQ, which is quite low, actually. But I never accepted this, or at least I didn't see the relevance of it, because I never had to change the way I was talking to them from how I'm talking to you. They understood what I was saying perfectly. So that either... Uh, what I'm saying doesn't require a very high IQ to understand, which is, of course, perfectly possible, <laughs> or their IQ was adequate to understanding it. And I preferred the second interpretation. And the fact is that they had, that they were regarded more or less as um, objects, as billiard balls who had been struck by other billiard balls in life and went off in the direction that they did go off in without any intervening consciousness. And this was something I couldn't accept. And I don't think uh, Tom Sowell would accept it either. Speaking of Tom Sowell, have you ever met him or spoken with him? No, I've, I've corresponded a little with him. Um, um, and of course, he's a most remarkable man in many respects. Um, of course, if he... <clears throat> if it weren't that he was a man of the greatest intellect, we wouldn't be talking about him here. But he's also a very brave man. And I don't know whether he'll be very pleased when I say this, but that I would say that his work is informed common sense and that any man who reads it immediately recognises uh, that almost all of it is common sense, provided, of course, you have a certain amount of information so his his great ability is to to connect information with truths which are obvious but come to a lot of people as revelatory. So things are both obvious and revelatory, um, and he that is I think his great strength. 
In Life at the Bottom, you portray the social pathologies of the British underclass. You describe the violence, the drugs, the breakdown of the family, and the chaos in the relations between men and women. You describe these pathologies within a predominantly white population. Sowell points to your work and he says, aha, these very same social pathologies are present in the black community here in America. And Dalrymple's work proves that these pathologies have nothing to do with racial genetics, nothing to do with racism, and nothing to do with a legacy of slavery or subjugation. I agree with Sowell, and I feel it's impossible to study your work and not come away with the realization that they have been lying to us for decades about the real root causes of society's ills. Society has changed so much over the past 60 years. To a large extent, Sowell blames the welfare state for the increase in many social pathologies. I get the sense that you don't fully agree with him on this subject. Tell us your thoughts. I think I, what I would say is I think it's a necessary condition, but probably not a sufficient condition. So that we don't, we have other um, welfare states in uh, Europe where the same pathology is not shown, at least not to any, uh, to the same extent. And so something else is necessary. And I think that something else uh, that is necessary is uh, ideological, uh, if you like, or philosophical preparation. And we've had that. We've had, for example, anti-family um, propaganda for, well, actually for a hundred years or more. And uh, this goes back to, to Sowell's idea that there are two kinds of vision uh, in the world, the constrained vision and the unconstrained vision, the criticisms of the family that you get, say, in Ibsen and uh, Strindberg and so on, and other playwrights, suggest that there is a form of, I mean, they, they describe the horrors of family life. And there's no doubt that family life can be horrible. It can be terrible. It can be hell. There's no doubt about that. But the idea that there can be forms of human association which eliminate all problems and that it, and that the way we associate isn't a choice between evils is, is one that, uh, uh, that the people with the unconstrained vision think. So they would say that there's some perfect way for men and women to associate that doesn't have drawbacks, that it's just all perfect. Utopia. It's utopian. Right. utopian. But let's talk about that relationship between between men and women in society. You 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 address this in Life at the Bottom quite deeply. Feminism, the advent of the pill, the sexual revolution, massive increases in illegitimacy, the rise of stepfatherhood. That was one of your key points in the book. The ubiquity now of pornography, the Me Too movement, involuntary celibacy, the popularization of childlessness and now declining birth rates in Western societies. It seems to me that over the past 100 years, there's been a total breakdown in the relationship between the sexes. Help us understand what's really going on here in this relationship. Well, it's not quite total because I get on fairly well with my wife. <laughs> so it's not 100%. What is very interesting, of course, is, is the uh, class nature of this breakdown and that the people who propounded all these theories actually behave as if they're not true in their in their personal lives. So as you go up the social scale, as you go up to the higher social class, 
so their uh, family life resembles much more the uh, family life of a hundred years ago than does the in the lower orders. So this has been visited upon the lower orders, if you like, the lower part of society, with absolutely catastrophic uh, results, to the extent that it is now, and this is a few years ago, so it might be worse, I very, very rarely met a young person who lived with a mother and a father in the same house. It was almost unknown. And I remember one patient saying to me when I asked who her father was, she said, do you mean my father at the moment? Which to me is is tragic. It's terrible. Yeah. And, and it seems also to me that if this is the way we associate, then nothing we do will make our, our lives better, uh, happier, um, or ordered. Um, so I think there's there are two things. The, the welfare state makes this very disordered life possible. I don't think it makes it inevitable, but it makes it possible. If on at the same time, people have the kind of ideas of human association that have been peddled, I'm afraid, by intellectuals for a very long time and continue to be peddled by intellectuals, then this combination is uh, disastrous. Now, what about the uh, childlessness trend? Mark Stein, uh, a writer from Canada who I follow, often talks about how all the major leaders of Europe are childless and that this is an omen for the future. Uh, How do you feel about that? Have you given any thought to that? I haven't given thought particularly to that. Um, I mean, it's not true of the present prime minister um, of Britain, for example. But uh, I suppose it's um, uh, it does make you think of um, Maynard Keynes's dictum that in the long term we're all dead, and he was thinking, of course, he was childless, so uh, he didn't have to think about his progeny, and so increasingly people don't have to think about their progeny, and yet at the same time they're obsessed. Uh, with a um, a distant future which may not come to pass. So there's a kind of contradiction there. The further in the future they think about it, the more engaged they are with it, the more real it seems to them. The, the immediate future doesn't seem all that um, important to them. Uh, but obviously it's a very serious problem for countries like Britain and France where the nature of the population has changed out of all recognition. And I spent quite a lot of time in Paris. I don't spend as much time in London. But when you're on a train, you really wouldn't know what country you were in, except that it would have to be Britain or France, because this is the only place where the, these things happen. But uh, in in the Paris metro, for example, I quite often find myself listening to people, not one of whom is speaking in French. Now, let me give you an example of the of our situation. Uh, my mother-in-law, and my wife is French, my mother-in-law needed carers for the last few years of her life. Every single one, and they were excellent, I have nothing but good to say of them, every single one was African. You could not get a European to do that work. So in other words, we need these people, but precisely because uh, we don't have enough children, or we didn't have enough children, and it's going to be even worse in the future. 
Let's talk about diversity for a minute. Thomas Sowell said this on the subject, quote, have you ever heard a single hard fact to back up all the sweeping claims for the benefits of diversity, end quote. In Life at the Bottom, you said this about multiculturalism, quote, when multiculturalists imagine the future, I suspect they have something in mind like the glorious multiplicity of restaurants serving all the cuisines of the world which is now to be found in most large cities. You can eat Thai on Monday, Italian on Tuesday, Szechuan on Wednesday, Hungarian on Thursday, and so forth, without any strain, whatever. You continue, quote, as a doctor working in a slum area with many immigrant, immigrant residents, I see multiculturalism from the ground up rather than from the theory down. And it is clear from what I see almost every day that not all cultural values are compatible or can be rec reconciled by the enunciation of platitudes. The idea that we can all rub along together without the law having to discriminate in favor of one set of cultural values rather than another is worse than merely false. It makes no sense whatever. In your lifetime, as you just mentioned, you've observed a dramatic change in England from a racially and culturally homogenous population to an incredibly diverse population. In your opinion, and from your experience, how should we be thinking about diversity? Well, there are two things as diversity is a fact. I mean, that is undoubtedly, uh, there's, there's simply no going back. You can't, you can't make eggs out of an omelet. So uh, that's a fact. And then there's the ideology of diversity. Now, it seems to me that in America and in France, France has a certain advantage because uh, there is a kind of a universalist ideology, uh, which the Americans, as far as I understand it, are losing, unfortunately for them, that they're, they're concentrating on their identities rather than on the fact that they're being America, that they're American. And that was the that was the great strength of America, that it was able to absorb large numbers of people from all over the place and turn them into Americans. But now it doesn't seem to be turning uh, them into Americans, uh, or at least not as efficiently as it once did. Uh, now, Britain is in a diff more difficult situation because it's an org organically grown society, if you like, that doesn't really have... Um, any philosophical basis. It just grew. We are capable, or we should be capable, of absorbing uh, people and turning them into British people. And we did that. I mean, we have done it to a considerable extent. Uh, but the people who, those who emphasize difference are pr actively preventing that process. So what they want is every society to be balkanized, every society to be a kind of um, Austro-Hungarian empire. And this doesn't seem to me to bode terribly well for the future. There must be some minimum in, in or some basis for living together. It doesn't mean to say that everyone has to be identical or can't keep certain uh, aspects of, uh, of a tradition alive. Um, within the society, but there must be some some glue that glues us together. Otherwise, we just happen to be living in the same place, as if as if the country were a hotel rather than a country.
Now, it seems to me that the multiculturalists, the ideologists of it, are trying to destroy any possible or dissolve any possible glue that keeps people together. Uh, and you can see for how how well and how it is possible for societies to integrate people. We now have a, a prime minister of Indian uh, descent. Well, actually, he was Indian from African descent, but anyway, Indian descent. And we have uh, uh, government ministers and so on who are British and who are popular, well, insofar as any member of the government is popular at the moment. Um, they are, at any rate, nobody thinks of them as anything other than British. They are voted for or against because of their policies, not because of their race. This is actually quite an achievement. But there are those who want to divide us rather than unite us, and who, of course, derive, as as as, 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 as Thomas Sowell points out, derive their incomes, their whole way of life from dividing people. It's in their uh, financial and uh, economic interest to divide us because that's how they gain their power and their influence and their money. Before I ask you about your new book, I have one more question on a Sowellian theme, personal responsibility. Thomas Sowell said this, quote, the vision of the anointed is one in which ills such as poverty, irresponsible sex, and crime derive primarily from society rather than from individual choices and behavior. To believe in personal responsibility would be to destroy the whole special role of the anointed, which is what you were saying, whose vision casts them in the role of rescuers of people treated unfairly by society, end quote. What say you on the subject of personal responsibility. Well, I, I, I agree fundamentally with that. And of course, uh, if you look at, I, I was particularly interested um, for a time, I mean, I'm less interested in it now, in the problem of heroin addiction in Britain. And in uh, about 19, late 1950s, we, it, we had a system called the British system in which heroin addicts could go to their doctors and get their heroin if they were deemed by their doctors to be bona fide heroin addicts. And in the 1950s, it was thought that there were about 60 heroin addicts in the uh, in the whole country. Well, there were probably more, uh, but it, it wouldn't have been enormously more because heroin addicts actually had a, an interest in going to their doctor and getting their heroin. Um, 50 years later, there were 300,000. Now, it could not be that they were, there are 300,000, this figure. First of all, it points to something other than a medical condition, in my view. And secondly, it isn't a question of poverty, because there had been an enormous increase in wealth in the meantime. So that when you talk to addicts, I would talk to addicts and I'd say, how, why, how did you become an addict? And they would always, always say, I fell in with the wrong crowd. That was always the answer. And I would say to them, it's strange, you know, <clears throat> I meet many people who fell in with the wrong crowd, but I've never met any member of the wrong crowd itself. And, uh, and of course, they would laugh because they would see that what they were saying, well, they knew all along that what they were saying was rubbish. 
nonsense. And when you consider what a, an injecting heroin addict has to do to become an injecting heroin addict, the idea that they simply fell into it is absurd. First of all, as a matter of fact, most heroin addicts take heroin on and off for, for many months before they become physically addicted. In order to become a heroin addict, you have to overcome an inhibition uh, to inject yourself. Most people don't like the idea of injecting themselves. I don't, I wouldn't want to inject myself. So you have to overcome that. You have to overcome the unpleasant side effect of, of heroin. You have to learn where to get your heroin, how to prepare your heroin, and so on and so forth. So the idea that it's something that you simply fall into, that you can do uh, without any intervention of consciousness is absolutely absurd. And furthermore, what I've just described demonstrates that people want to become heroin addicts because they all know, I mean, they may not know very much, but they know what being a heroin addict entails, and uh, they've seen it all around them. So this is a condition that is actually wanted. Now, yeah, to yeah. pretend that that this condition is just a kind of response to social conditions, therefore, misses something very, very important. In fact, it, in fact, it's just a lie, in my view. In Life at the Bottom, you talk about this phenomenon of parasuicide, which I had never really known much about. And is that somehow related to the heroin-type addiction? Is that a, a form of a cry for no, no, well, no, I don't think so. No, I think um, there's an interesting fact about parasuicide or statistic about parasuicide. Parasuicide, that is the taking of overdoses or cutting the wrists and so on, which is sort of has a kind of suicidal flavor, but isn't really intended to, to be suicide. And often it's emotional blackmail, in fact, or, or a, a sign of distress. That started uh, when suicide ceased to be a crime in England. In 1952, there was a play by an eminent and a very good English playwright called Terence Rattigan called The Deep Blue Sea. And in that play, uh, it starts off with someone having tried to gas himself with domestic gas. And the characters sit around talking about whether they have to call the police because it's a it was a crime. Well, it ceased to be a crime and the numbers exploded. So from about six or 8,000 in no time, it went up to 150,000 a year. That's a lot for a country the size of Britain. I just looked it up before our call, and we had 50,000 suicides uh, in 2022. But I, I well, guess that's successful suicides. That's successful suicide. Right. Well, so we don't know the, about the Paris there are thir In Britain, there are 30, 30 of these episodes for each successful suicide. Okay. So if in the United States you had the same uh, ratio, it would be uh, 1,500,000 episodes. But uh, this is this is treated often in the literature as if it were just a natural phenomenon rather than something that uh, has to do with the culture in which people are living. So we're coming to the end of our time today. So I'd like to end this conversation with this question: What's your What's your next book going to be well, about? So it, yeah, it's a very different book. It's um, it, it's a book about. Um, 
forgotten or neglected writers who are buried in Père Lachaise Cemetery in, in Paris. Père Lachaise is the most famous cemetery in the world, and people like Balzac and Proust and Oscar Wilde are buried there. And one day when I was thinking, walking through it, I um, I thought, well, if there are famous writers buried here, there must be many writers, many more writers uh, who are unknown who are buried here because, of course, most writers are completely unknown <laughs> and are forgotten even before they die. So um, so I, uh, if you like, disinterred several. And what I found was that actually they were not forgotten because they were not good. They were all extremely interesting and very, very diverse. And uh, it was a useful exercise because it gave me, uh, it made me see uh, these people's worlds through their eyes. And, and that's something that, uh, despite our genuflection to multiculturalism, people are not willing to do. Increasingly, we live, on the one hand, with official multiculturalism, and on the other hand, an increasingly rigid moralism. And these two things don't go together very well. Anthony Daniels, thank you for joining me on the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you very much. This has been episode 38 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. If you like this podcast and want to support the work we are doing, introducing more and more people to the ideas of Thomas Sowell, there are many ways you can help. Rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about Sowell and the podcast. Support us on Patreon. Purchase our Thomas Sowell post-it notes and faux postage stamps. Follow me on Twitter for daily Sowell quotes and to connect with other fans of You Know Who. For now, just sit back and enjoy this orchestral version of Eminem's Lose Yourself, performed by Vince Cox.
thanks for listening.